Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. While you're doing that, I would just mention a couple things. One is we have a wedding that is going to take place here this uh, Saturday. Uh, Kim and Marcelino, who are members of a church pastored by P.J. Tobian from Master's College, uh, they'll be getting married here uh, on Saturday. Um, so keep them in your prayers, if you would. Also pray for Jason and Gwen. Jason's gone ahead, and then Gwen is going tomorrow to Hawaii for a wedding. It's tough when your friends get married in Hawaii, and you have to go and attend. Um, but pray for their safety and, and, and a good time there with their friends. We finished looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians. That is, we've come to the end of the letter. But as we did with our study in the book of James, that is his letter or his sermon to the members who had moved away, we will, the Lord willing, go back through Galatians and reconsider some of the matters that we came across. As in our study uh, after we went through the book of James, we will find that these issues are interwoven, interconnected, and they form a whole. However, unlike what we did after James, we won't be looking at specific words that we found in Galatians. You know, in James, we looked at sin, trial, wisdom, freedom, faith, uh, and God. What I hope to do here is look more at the underpinnings or the foundation material behind the scenes, if you wish, or assumed that allowed Paul, that caused Paul to write what he did and for it to make sense. In part, at least as we begin the study, we will do so in light of what Paul wrote to the Philippians. It is a familiar verse, I think, to many. It's uh, verse number eight of Philippians chapter four. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Because this verse is so familiar, I think we fail to appreciate its significance. The verses that come before it, I think, sound more Bible-y, if you wish. I mean, um, look, if you would, um, beginning at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This sounds more like what we're familiar with when it comes to scripture. In verses four through seven, what we find really are what we would call the Old Testament scriptures or Jewish scriptures. This is very, uh, very Jewish, if you wish as Paul writes it. Verse 8 sounds very Greek, very Hellenistic, and in many ways very philosophical. We have nothing like verse number 8 in all of Paul's writings. This, this verse really stands quite alone and quite apart. Um, I think the Philippians understood it. It reflected the world in which they live uh, before they became followers of Christ and friends of Paul. Um, some of the words here are found in Jewish literature, in wisdom literature of the Old Testament, but the language is, in fact, very much that of the culture surrounding them. In fact, as one author has argued, if you take away the first two words, finally, brothers, if you took those words away, what you are left with could have fit into 
uh, a discourse or discourses by a philosopher named Epictetus or moral essays by Seneca. It sounds much more philosophical and much more Greek than it does biblical or Jewish. And it goes on beyond that in verse number 11, if you would look at it. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. On the face of it, this is a straightforward statement. Uh, but if we're not careful, it might, in fact, end up sounding very fatalistic or stoical. In fact, the word that Paul uses for content was a word used by the Stoics. And just an aside, who, who are the Stoics? Um, I think we need to look at this because Paul was a prisoner at the time that he writes this. Um, and so I think if we're not careful, we will see him as being stoic in the midst of his difficult circumstances. The other reason is that oftentimes we make the mistake, and certainly others do, that we think that being a Christian means to be stoic. That you sort of have to grin and bear it, hang on for all your worth, and, and that's what it means to be a Christian. Uh, no, that's not correct, and Paul was not a stoic. Stoicism is a school of Hellenistic philosophy, which was said to have begun in the 3rd century B.C. by a man named Zeno. And it had a strong following throughout the Roman Empire. The core belief of Stoicism was tied to human freedom and determinism. And it was the belief that you had to have virtue. And in a sense, you had, as a virtuous person, to simply stand in the midst of all sorts of circumstances. Issues like health, happiness, possessions, those are not important. What was important was virtue of the will, not your circumstances. So no matter what your circumstances were, you would remain the same. And that's when we speak of someone being stoic, either you know, they should be happy, but they're just sort of staying the same, or they should be deeply saddened and they're just staying the same. That's what a stoic was. The circumstances didn't matter they would always remain the same. And somehow, that's how people read Paul. And I would argue that, in fact, is not what he's doing. Um, and I think it's important for us to see that. Having said that, when Paul writes verse number 11, he uses a word in Greek that the Stoics used. There are other words he could have chosen. He could have written this in a much different way. If anything, it seems to open the door to confusion that we might misunderstand what he's saying. There's something else going on that I find fascinating, and I don't know if I live long enough, if I have the time, it's something I'd like to look at further. One of the leading Stoic philosophers of the first century was a man named Seneca the Younger. He was the tutor of Nero, who was Caesar at this point. And then he became advisor to, Ser uh, to Nero as Caesar. He died in 62 AD by suicide because he found out that Nero was going to kill him, which Nero was wont to do. Um, Paul was a prisoner in Rome at that time. And we know from the book of Philippians that he was in Caesar's household. It is, in fact, very possible that Paul and Seneca met face to face, which I find to be an intriguing uh, possibility. Even if they didn't meet, his philosophy was in the air. Listen to what he wrote. No man finds poverty a trouble to him, but he thinks, but he that thinks it so. In other words, if you think you're poor, then in fact you are poor. It's a problem. And he that thinks it so makes it so. 
In other words, you should learn to be content. Isn't that what Paul said? No, it's not what Paul said, but Paul uses similar language. Why not avoid it altogether? A book that came out a couple of years does something very similar. It's called The Passionate Intellect, Incarnational Humanism and the Future of University Education. And the authors in an interview say that they deliberately chose the word humanism. For most Christians, the word humanism is just one of those poisonous words that we don't dare use because usually we say secular humanism. So just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, I think we need to recover these words like contentment or being content and like humanism. I think that's what Paul does. And that, in fact, is what these two professors were trying to do in their book. The incarnation is, in fact, an affirmation of humanism, to be human. Um, we shouldn't throw out words just because non-Christians or other people use them. In the same way, Paul uses this word in Greek, artarcheia, which means to be content. The difference between Paul and the Stoics was the Stoics were self-sufficient. They learned to be content on their own. They weren't going to let circumstances throw them. They were going to be content. Their sufficiency came from within. For Paul, it came from without. His contentment was in Christ, which he says, I can do all things through Christ. So there's a radical difference. The word is the same, but they're used, the thinking behind them is very, very different. With that in mind, let's go back to verse number eight, where Paul gives us a list of six qualities. Six qualities that the Stoics would have been very happy to write themselves. They would have embraced this. Yes, these things are good. Having given the list, Paul says, think about such things. And when he says think about it, I think, unfortunately, the English is not strong enough here. What he means is take them into account. Or give consideration to these things. The New American Standard has a best, I think, dwell on these things. These are things that we are to think deeply about. So Paul is not saying that we should have high thoughts, if you wish, about such things. As much as we should take into account the good that they are, particularly as they are in Jesus Christ. And that's the difference in verse number eight between Paul and Seneca. Seneca could say the same thing, but he has no notion of Jesus Christ. For Paul, all of these things he has listed are in Jesus Christ. I want to begin with the first one today as sort of a jumping off point for what we will do as we go back to the book of Galatians. And that is whatever is true. One need only to read Paul's writings to know that for him, truth finds its measure, its source in God and the gospel. In the Old Testament, truth as true speech was seen as opposed to something that was a lie or something that was deceitful. It is associated with righteousness and fairness. Someone who spoke the truth was righteous and fair. And so whatever is true is in fact truth. There is a saying that is attributed to Augustine, and that is that all truth is God's truth. That is to say, if something is true, then it is, in fact, truth from God. When we come into the New Testament, 
becomes clear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But this isn't a narrow truth, if you wish. It's like, okay, you've got the truth of mathematics, the truth of physics and science, all these other things, and then you have this very narrow truth about getting to heaven, and that's what Jesus is. He is this truth. He is the truth. No. All truth is found in him. It is all connected to him. It is in the incarnation, for example, that we find the dignity of being human being reaffirmed. And we find the dignity of nature as well being affirmed. There's something we need to talk about as we go through the sermon today, and that is we no longer live in a Christian world. We live in a post-Christian world. We can no longer do so, and perhaps we never should have, use words like true or truth, goodness, happiness, and beauty, and expect that the people to whom we're talking would mean the same thing that we do. I think the same thing is true of God. That you say God and you assume that everyone means the same thing you do, a Trinitarian uh, reality? No. I've mentioned before that uh, we have the three masters of suspicion at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century who really challenge the thinking of the Enlightenment. We have Marx, who challenged economic thinking, uh, Nietzsche, the thinking of morality, this is the Victorian age, and then Freud, who challenged the whole notion of selfhood. For each of these men, everything was about one thing. For Marx, it was all about money. For Nietzsche, it was all about power. For Freud, it was all about sex. And these three things replaced what should have been there, and that is relationship, stewardship, and worship. Now, we live in a post-Christian world, and it doesn't simply mean that we live in the world of modernity. Because, yes, in one sense, we have one foot there. But we also live in a time of post-modernity, of suspicion and nihilism. In the world in which we live today, truth is seen as a myth. I have a visitor with me today. Um, So today, if you say to someone, this is truth, inevitably the answer will be, well, that's your truth. The idea that you have truth that is true for all people of all time no longer exists. I would argue that in the modern world it did, but now in the postmodern world we no longer hear it. We live in a time in which there is no story that is told about the meaning of life. All knowledge is seen as a matter of power. Knowledge is power. Today we live in a cultural, economic, moral hypermarket. Pick what you want and put it all together and that becomes your truth. With all that in mind, how do we approach the book of Galatians? And how do we apply what Paul says to the Galatians to us today? You might be better off closing the door there. I hope that you've been listening to me and not paying attention to the cat. If Paul were alive today, what would he say to us? I'm making an assumption here, but I would say that Paul would tell us the truth. 
The question then is, how would we receive, how would we respond, and how would we react to what Paul would tell us? Or would we use the current meaning for true and truth, or would we find what is found in Scripture? When Paul says, whatever is true, do we accept that as he means it in a biblical context, that truth is found in Jesus Christ? Or do we take it as people use it today? To begin to tackle this problem, we need to deal with at least two issues. The first is, how has the Bible been read over the past 20 centuries? And you will forgive me if, as one who teaches history, if I take a particular delight in giving you a brief history lesson. I want to make it brief, but I want to hit some highlights, and I I think it will be helpful for us to understand how it is that we read the Bible today. First of all, the early church saw themselves as the continuation of God's plan, the plan that was promised to Abraham centuries before. And in the language from the illustration last Sunday, the church saw itself as joining the travelers who had traveled over sea, that's Israel and the law, now they're on land, Jesus has come, he has fulfilled the law, that part of the journey is finished, and now they are walking on land, and they are continuing with this plan, this promise that God had made to Abraham. They saw Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection as the turning point of history. If you wish, it's the getting off the boat and getting onto land. The kingdom of God is broken into human history, and therefore the scriptures are seen as having authority, they are authoritative, and they speak truth as to the nature of things, as to the nature of reality. This is what we find in the early church. But within two centuries, we begin to find a shift. In many ways, I would argue, using the illustration, they forgot about the sea part of the journey. They forgot about Israel's part in the story. And in many ways, the sense of story is lost altogether. They no longer think in terms of, oh, God promised something to Abraham, and then you have Isaac and Jacob and the twelve sons and the tribes and all these things, and they lead up to the Messiah the church had forgotten that or had set it aside. The narrative part of Bible of the Bible was weakened, very much so. So the stories of the Old Testament, for example, were not seen as, well, they were seen as true, but really insignificant. It's more the spiritual truths that they had to teach us. Um, they became allegories. Now, Paul uses allegory in Galatians. He does with one story, one time. But we find in the early church fathers, this became their way of interpreting the scriptures. The man I think best associated with this is a man named Origen. By the way, I disagree with the way he read scripture, but let me tell you this about him. He lived from 185 to 254 A.D. His father was martyred. Origen's father was put to death for the Christian faith. And Origen wanted to be martyred himself. He wanted to join his father, but his mom hid his clothes so he couldn't leave the house. If his mom hadn't hid his clothes, he would have gone out and been put to death for the Christian faith. This man is a brother. I mean, let's, I disagree with how he read scripture, uh, but we all have our faults. Uh, But let's understand that this was a man who was passionate for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should not question his sincerity of those like him. But the results of his interpreting the scripture's allegory were not encouraging. The reality of the narrative was forgotten. 
And the meaning of the story was created based on allegory. Now, they saw the Bible as having authority. There's no question of that. But the meaning and the application went any, every which way that you wanted. And in the process, something happened over time. Tradition became a stronger part of the church than the Bible. And to a certain degree, it replaced the Bible in terms of authority. Because if you look at allegory, everyone can have a different interpretation. So which one is authoritative? You don't know. So you set up tradition, you say, this is the authority, this is what we will follow. Briefly, what is allegory? I keep talking about it, and we went through this when we went through Galatians. It is a story in which each element represents something or someone beyond itself. And so, we have to decide, okay, this element, what does it represent? Who does it represent? Um, Henry and I talked about this after the sermon when I mentioned this. You know, in the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you use the allegorical method, uh, what does the donkey represent? What do the two coins represent? What does the inn represent? Well, I would say that the donkey represents the donkey, and the two coins are the two coins, and the inn is the inn. The story is, in fact, a story about what it means to be a neighbor, to be a good neighbor. The good Samaritan was a neighbor to someone he did not even know. Well, in the centuries prior to the Reformation, a new form of interpretation came about, and we talked about this when we went through the portion on allegory. It was called the quadriga. It means, literally, a vehicle that is pulled by four horses. And it was believed in the church, as people read the scripture, that every verse, every passage had four meanings. So if you read a verse, there were four different meanings. Um, the first was literal, the original meaning, but this could also be allegorical, so this gets confusing. The moral, that is, what does this mean for behavior? Allegorical, what it means for doctrine. And then, uh, in terms of analogy or mysticism, what it tells us about the future. It's sort of an eschatological view. The Bible was seen as authoritative. They still saw the Bible as having authority. But it begins to be diminished in favor of tradition. When the Reformation comes about in church history, what is recovered is the authority of Scripture. And the motto of the, rest of the Reformation is sola scriptura, only the Scripture. That the authority of Scripture is restored. It is only the Scripture that has authority to tell us what to do. And it's not simply a resource, something that we sort of whip out a verse if we want to defend our position or to destroy somebody else's position. It is, in fact, authoritative for all of life. It was held that the centrality of the cross pulled all things together. The resurrection of Jesus is the turning point in human history. The Reformation recovers this sense. And it was held, as one writer put it, that the word of God could and would once again do a fresh work in the hearts and lives of ordinary people. But then the question comes up, how are we to read the Bible? How are we to understand it? If the four ways of under, you know, the four different levels are set aside, what do you put in its place? The reformers insisted on a literal interpretation of the scripture. By this, they meant what the writers originally meant. So, if the writer used a metaphor, well, then it's a metaphor. 
If the writer in the book of Psalms, for example, meant it to be poetic, then it was poetic. Unfortunately, people now take the word literal and they mean you know, literal as we use it today and not as the writers originally intended it to be used. The, refor- the reformers had broken away from the Roman Catholic Church. And in response, we have what is known as the Counter-Reformation, in which the Church, the Catholic Church said, what is it that we believe about Scripture? This is what the Reformers were saying, these people who have broken away from us, they say sola scriptura. What do we say? We have the Council of Trent, then, that is held in the 16th century. And the Catholic Church determined that Scripture and tradition were to be of equal authority. So there is a very big difference here between Catholicism and Protestantism or the Reformation what in the place of Scripture. Here it is Scripture alone. Only the Scripture has authority. For all the wonderful things the Reformers did, they did not recover what the early church had, and that is the sense of journey, the sense of we are part of something much larger than ourselves, a big story that began at sea on ship with the Jews and the law, now has come ashore in the person of Jesus, and now we are continuing toward the promised land that had been lost. When the Reformation came about, we have the rise of the modern age. And it is in the modern age where reason comes into play. And when people turned away from the Catholic Church to Scripture, the question is, wait a minute. In the Catholic Church, we have tradition. They are the ones who interpret Scripture. If you're setting that aside... How am I to read the Bible? How am I to understand it? And with the rise of modernity, people say, well, you have to use reason. Well, if you've read the scripture at all, there are different points in scripture in which reason, well, the scripture does not make sense by human reason. And this is where the conflict comes up between faith and reason. And rather than fight the battle of saying, this, in fact, is what scripture is saying, People are like, well, this is what I believe it says. And then people over there who did not believe, well, okay, you use your reason. You use your reason, and I will use my faith. And this huge ditch, as it came to be known, emerged between people of the church, those outside the church. In place of the literal understanding of Scripture, people began to speak of the plain sense. That is, when you read it, what does it say to you? Well, this opened a Pandora's box. And as a result, one of the many results, uh, people saw the Bible as having a theological meaning and a subjective meaning. remember a professor of mine um, being quite upset and trying to correct our thing about this. He says it really bothered him that you could get 15 people in a circle at a Bible study and you read a passage of Scripture and you go one by one and say, what does it say to you? What does it say to you? What does it mean to you? And then you have 15 different versions of what it means and then people say, praise God, isn't it wonderful? The Bible means different things to different people. And he would say, absolutely not. But this is what emerges as a result of people saying, well, okay, we've rejected in a sense tradition, And we're saying the literal sense, but then as modernity comes in, we reject reason. And so it's like when you read the Bible and you sort of get this warm, fuzzy feeling or or whatever, and you say, well, that's what it means to me, which very much dovetails in with with the world today. Oh, that's your truth. 
So that if I were to read a verse today, you all might come up with something different and we, we can all be happy and say, well, we all have our own version of truth. Well, when Paul says whatever is true, that's not what he's thinking about. Okay? What he's thinking about is that there is capital T truth. And that truth is found in Jesus Christ. If we lose sight of that, I think, well, it's all over. We have lost. As wonderful as it might sound to say that the Bible means different things to different people, the Bible is robbed of all authority. Because if that's my understanding of Scripture, and that's your understanding of Scripture, which one is authoritative? Which one is right? Well, you know, don't, don't be so dogmatic. Well, either there is that which is true and that which is false, or if there isn't, then we have no authority whatsoever. When we say today to people, this is what the Bible says, I think for most people it means almost next to nothing. Because for them, that's simply how you read the Bible. And let's be, let's be fair. Let, let's be honest. For the last century or so, oftentimes people have said, this is what the Bible says. And actually what they mean is, this is what I think the Bible says, or this is what I want the Bible to say, or this is what I'm using to support my particular position. Scripture is God's word. It is therefore authoritative. But that authority is not always accepted. And I think what we feel more comfortable doing is sharing that authority with something else. For some, it is with tradition. For some, it is with reason. Others share that authority with experience. And in the process, what the scriptures have to say is lost or certainly is diminished to some degree, if not to a large degree. This is not to say, by the way, that tradition is not important. I mean, do we imagine that we are the first Christians of the world? Do we imagine that our brothers and sisters who live before us have nothing of value to say to us? Of course not. Do we believe that reason has no place as we read scripture? Well, of course not. We are rational beings. God made us this way. And do we think that experience has nothing to say to us? It is, in fact, in the context context of experience, I think that scripture speaks to us. Um, the reading and the studying of scripture should affect our experience. You know, it is one thing to read and to study about the love of God. It is something quite altogether different to experience the love of God. But the two are to be connected and experience is not to trump authority of scripture. We cannot say, well, this is true because I feel it is true. It is true whether you feel it or not. In many ways, it is true whether you think it or not. And one might even go a step further and say it is true whether other people acknowledge it or not. Experience is a part of what it means to be a Christian. And so experience should be seen in terms of the context in which we hear scripture. It is the place where we stand, metaphorically, as we hear God's word. As we come to know his love as we come to understand his wisdom. It is vital that we experience the power and love of God in our lives. Otherwise, if we do not take into account experience, then we're left with a very mechanical view of things. And the Bible simply becomes a textbook. 
It becomes a theological source book so I can pull out arguments and destroy the arguments of other people. Experience is important, but it is not authoritative. Otherwise, we are left with no authority except our own experience, and everyone has their own. To get back to where we started in Philippians 4, when Paul says, whatever is true, dwell on that, take into account, give consideration, how does he convey what is true? He's been writing these letters. How does he convey what is true? Well, as we've seen in the book of Galatians, Paul does so in story. He tells stories. And just to review what we looked at when we went through Galatians, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul tells his story to establish his authority and authenticity as an apostle, and therefore the authority and the authenticity of the gospel. He also includes a side story of his rebuking Peter, and this is still within the context of this is what the gospel is, and Peter got off track and I rebuked him because we are all one in Christ. And then in chapter 3, he begins the chapter with the Galatian story, or what we might call, what's wrong with this story. He calls them back. He's like, what happened to you people? Who bewitched you? You were going down the right path, and suddenly you got off track. And then he tells Abraham's story. He quotes two passages from the book of Genesis. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis Chapter 15, and then in Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the big story. But after this, he tells the story of the curse. And I don't know if you remember when we went through this. Um, Being under a curse in the Old Testament is not some abstraction. Uh, It describes God's reaction, his personal reaction against sin. And it has a long history from Genesis chapter 3 to the end of Malachi. In fact, the last word in the Old Testament is the word curse. Uh, Certainly a study worth looking at. But Paul tells us as a story. And then he tells us the story of the promise. And this is in chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. The story of the law. Because with the story of the promise, um, the promise that God made to Abraham, and we have the story of Abraham, how does the law fit in? If God made a promise to Abraham, um, what's the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law? It would seem that the law trumped the promise and had replaced the promise. This was not true. And as we saw that the story of the law comes under the larger story of the promise. Then we have the story of faith, the story of the new exodus. This is in chapter four, the language of slavery, redemption and inheritance. And as we saw this, we would expect that Paul would make a theological argument here. And instead, he speaks to us of God as Trinity. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. God the Father sent God the Son and the spirit into our hearts. Then we have the story of the Galatians, in a sense, revisited. Then two more, the story of Paul and the Galatians, as the two met each other years before. And then the story of the free woman 
and Hagar, the allegory. Um, as I said, when we were going through our study in Galatians, the use of story in this book is really quite unexpected. And as familiar as I am with scriptures, I began to study. I don't know if you do this, but so, so often we read it and read it and it just sort of we're not really paying attention or we are, but we, we sort of miss things. Uh, People have looked at the book of Galatians as Paul's theological argument against the law. And yet he spends four chapters of the six chapters telling stories. It's really quite unexpected. We almost have a feeling that we're in Sunday school, that we're in the Old Testament or in the Gospels or the book of Acts, but certainly not in the epistles. In the epistles, that's where we want doctrine and theology. But Paul uses story. By the way, the scripture does. This is how God deals with us as well. Uh, I mentioned earlier the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you remember, Jesus told that story because somebody said, who is my neighbor? And the temptation would be, we'll say, come on, you know, your neighbor, it's the person that you come in contact with, the person in need. Instead, Jesus tells a story, the story of the Good Samaritan. I think the church, but our, the surrounding culture as well, has uh, neglected the place of story. And in its place, we put theology or doctrine or philosophy. We like to make arguments. We like things to be really quite concise. One author says about story, it is by reading scripture that the church remembers the story that gives it an identity and makes it a community. It is in scripture that we read the story of who we are. Now, as I said when we went through Galatians, I want to be careful because I think it was Mark Twain who said, uh, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when I'm thinking in terms of story, it's like I see story everywhere. There is more to scripture than story. We have legal statutes. We have laws and wisdom precepts, wise sayings. We have prophetic oracles and apocalyptic visions. We have letters. We have pastoral advice. But all of these things are under one big story, one grand narrative, which begins with the creation of all things. And it ends in Revelation with the renewal of all things. In between, we have the fall. But the center point, the turning point of history from creation to renewal is Jesus Christ. It's the cross. That's what changes everything. And so things can be renewed because of what Jesus has done. And we have this overarching story. This is what history is about. This grand narrative. And so as Christians, for us, story is important. It should have priority. Yes, there are rules. Yes, there are laws. There are commandments. There are advice. There is wisdom. There is poetry. We have all of these things. But these things are not given out of context as, as timeless truths. I'm amazed sometimes that people who are unbelievers uh, embrace certain parts of Scripture. And I think now I'm beginning to understand it. They do so because they don't accept the story. They accept this part. Like people like the Ten Commandments. They don't like the, <clears throat> the first part of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Story. Okay. We don't want that. Let's go with the Ten Commandments. And so people... And, uh, I get this from time to time. People call me up and say, I need a passage of scripture that will comfort me. Uh, or I need a passage of scripture that will encourage me. 
and there are such places. But I think in the process, we've lost the sense that there is this story that God is telling. He created the world and through sin, the world fell into ruin. But one day all things will be restored. And it's possible because at the center, the turning point of the story is the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is precisely what Paul does in the book of Galatians. As we saw in the last chapter of Galatians, it's all about the cross of Christ. And we saw that not only is Christ was Christ crucified, but Paul was. We are to crucify the flesh and the world has been crucified. That is to say, a turning point has happened and we are now going toward the restoration of all things. That is the story. So, if you still question what's the big deal about story, I would ask you to consider two things. I would suggest two avenues of thought for you. Paul wrote in our text today that we are to consider, we are to dwell on, take into account whatever is true. But living when and where we do, the story or the stories of scripture are rejected or, or ignored. And the truth is reduced, and I'll put reduced in quotation marks, in my opinion, to propositions. So the Bible simply becomes doctrine. Point one, point two, point three. And it allows us as Christians to become biblically illiterate. That we know doctrine, but we don't know the Bible. And isn't that ironic? That we know what we call the truth. We know true doctrines, but we don't know scripture. Those of you who know me well know that I have a deep love for the Old Testament. I attribute this to my mom. As, as a young boy, my mom used to read to me Bible stories. I don't remember this. I was five years old when we first went to the Philippines. And we went by ship and we went uh, via Japan and then to the Philippines. And on the ship with us, it was a freighter, there were six Roman Catholic priests who were going to be missionaries in Japan. And I don't remember this. My parents have told me about this. But one of them, apparently, I befriended. And every night I would sit in his lap and he would read to me from my Bible storybook. I love the stories of the Old Testament. And it grieves me deeply that most Christians today know little or nothing about the Old Testament. They might know certain verses or certain passages. But they don't know the stories. And it's more than Sunday school stuff. This is part of the overall story, the grand narrative in which God is going to restore, redeem and renew all things. And Jesus Christ is at the center of it. See, I think many people, the way that they think is Jesus is sort of the beginning of all things. That uh, for many people, if the Bible began at Matthew chapter one, they'd be fine with that. All you need is the New Testament. And I, I don't know who came up with the brilliant idea of just printing New Testaments. And then some, oh, let's put in the Psalms there, because you know, you've got to have some Old Testament stuff in there. Um, and as a result, the picture is off, it's off kilter. Because Jesus is the center of the story, which means you have to have a beginning and you have to have an ending. And because creation is a mess due to sin, that's why Jesus came and he is going to restore all things. And so when Jesus is the way, the truth 
in the life. It isn't truth, I'm going to heaven when I die kind of truth. It is all truth. It is found in Jesus Christ. He is the center of all things. I remember uh, Francis Schaeffer years ago asked a famous theologian, do you believe that God created the world? And he said, yes, I, I do. Uh, Schaeffer said, really, when do you believe God created the world? He said, first century A.D. He meant with the coming of Jesus. And Schaeffer said, no, 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 this world. And he said, oh, this world is nothing. Really? We've got to have that story of creation and redemption or we've lost, we've lost it all. My hope for the church is that there would be a return to Scripture to know the truth and to know the story of God's plan. As to why the church has turned away from it, I've already given you a brief history of how the church has read Scripture. And we went from literal to plain. And when we go to the plain sense of Scripture, it's like, well, that's what this passage means to me. Um, Without being overly harsh, I think the main reason, I don't know if it's the main reason, but one of the big reasons why the church doesn't know Scripture, it's lazy. Christians are lazy. It's sloth. And it isn't simply a matter of reading from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. It's a matter of studying it and getting to know it. To know Scripture is hard work. Shouldn't it be? It is the Word of God, after all. We expect that it be like reading a comic book of some sort. Don't you expect that it would require some effort on your part? One more avenue for you to consider, for you to think about, and that is that the world that surrounds us today rejects the notion of story. The modern world does. As one writer put it, the story of the modern world is that we can and should be without stories. It's one of the great ironies. In the same way that people would say there is no, you know, the only absolute is that there is no absolute. Well, you're being somewhat contradicting yourself. You see, as the Enlightenment came into being, they said, you know, we have too many problems. Too many people are fighting. Catholics are fighting the Protestants. Protestants, Catholics, and then different points of view politically. I know. Let's make peace. And the way we can make peace is everyone put your stories aside. See, the story tells you who you are, how you're supposed to live, what is right, what is wrong, what is good. Well, if your story is different than my story, then we may have a disagreement. We may actually fight. So the Enlightenment says, forget it. Put the stories aside. And if you insist on keeping your stories, because some Christians wouldn't let go of their stories, okay, you can keep your stories, but just let's pretend that there are fairy tales. This is where the Enlightenment comes in. And now the stories of Scripture, we should insert the words before it, once upon a time. Because whenever you hear that, then you think, well, I'm not actually hearing something that's true. And Christians felt content, well, at least we get to keep our stories, but the stories are reduced to fables. In its place was put, because people have to have story, was one big story for everyone, and that was the story of progress. The Enlightenment said, we are moving up like this. Let's all join in together, and we're going to make this world a better place. Get rid of your own individual stories, and let's join the big story, the myth of progress. 
Well, in the last 20 or 30 years, modernity is slowly but surely being pushed aside. And the story of progress, the myth of progress, really? World War One, the Holocaust, the genocide in Cambodia and Rwanda, wait, progress? <laughs> We're making progress, maybe technologically, but morally and as people, I don't think so. And so postmodernism has said, we're going to reject that story. And now the story is like, bring your story back in. Everybody has a story. But now the story has no authority. So now it's, well, that's your truth. That's your story. Isn't that nice? We're glad that you have a story to tell. So what do we do as God's people? Imagine that we are Paul and we are in Nero's palace. And there's Seneca, the leading Stoic. A man who talks about what is true. A man who talks about contentment. Do we say, I can't use that word because he uses it. No. As God's people, we have to reclaim these words. And we have to reclaim what is true. But I think for many of us, that begins with us considering taking into account, dwelling on what is true, revisiting scripture and remembering the stories that are told there. We are to remember that there is a grand narrative that began in Genesis 1.1. It's the creation of all things. And it will end in Revelation with the renewal of all things. And the renewal is made possible because of the cross of Christ. This is what Paul tells the Galatians by his using stories. Um, there's a part of us, I, uh, not quite sure what to make of it, but there's a part of us that, that thinks that stories are for kids. That, um, yeah, that's more of a childish thing. And, you know, when you become a, an adult, you sort of put those things aside. Um, I would suggest you rethink that. That we are not robots. We're not ro automatons that you sort of plug in information to us. And that's what, that's what informs us, if you wish. What you do is you tell us stories. And rather than informing us, they form us. They shape us into the people that God would have us to be. The Lord willing, we will revisit this next Sunday. And look at other issues, I think, that are central to what Paul is saying here in Galatians. What is goodness? What is happiness? And what is beauty? By way of closing, I must tell you, years ago, I took a class in botany over at L.A. City College uh, with a professor who lives down the street, a friend of mine, Barbara Hoshizaki. And at the beginning of the semester, she had us doing all these things in the greenhouse. And she didn't explain why. She just had us doing things. We were repotting things and... And then as the semester went on, we learned, if you wish, the science behind what we had done earlier. And I asked her, why didn't you tell us the science and then have us do it? And she said, well, if I did, you wouldn't see the results of your work because the semester ends. So I have your repot. And then by the end of the semester, you see that things have taken off. I'm using sort of the same thinking now. Why didn't we talk about this before we looked at Galatians? Well, we've looked at Galatians. 
if you, if you wish, we've dissected it, we've repotted, okay, we've got this information, we've learned. Now let's go back and look at the underpinnings, the foundation, and I think have a deeper appreciation for what Paul wrote to his brothers in Galatia. Let's pray together. Father, if we would be honest, we would confess that sometimes we think your method of communication is is somewhat inefficient. Um, Living when and where we do, we would think sort of a bullet point list would be much more effective. A PowerPoint presentation rather than the telling of stories and the giving of names and a whole book of poems. Part of that is because we've lost what it means to be human. We've also lost the place of story. I pray that by your grace, your spirit would work in our hearts and we would recover this. And it would drive us to scripture, to read it anew, to study it anew. And to see what it is that you have done, are doing, and will do with your creation. And above all, we would see that Jesus Christ and his cross are the turning point of all things. He is the truth. Not in some narrow sense, but in all its fullness. We thank you for him and all he has and is doing for us. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, and sing the doxology together?